Mark chapter one, beginning in verse thirty five, we read now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he that is Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. In the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, not only are we introduced to the servant, Jesus, but we are also introduced to the subject of his authority. Jesus calls his disciples demonstrating authority over the believer's destiny in verses 16 through 20. Jesus commands demons and demonstrates his power over the forces of the unseen, invisible world of darkness in verses 21 through 28. With a touch, Jesus heals diseases and demonstrates his power over a cursed creation in verses 29 through 34. And also, we're going to see again in verses 40 through 45. In this passage, Jesus will find a quiet place to pray, a secret place to commune with his heavenly father. And even under those circumstances, he will demonstrate authority in prayer. So what was the source of the Savior's power? Was it his deity? Clearly, the Bible teaches that Jesus was and is God, was the source of his power, God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that Jesus is unique. And again, remember what that word means. It means one of a kind, like no other. Remember, the Bible teaches that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is completely human in his incarnation, but he has always been and will forever be God. Theologians call this undiminished deity. That means he is fully God, true, truly human. That means 100 percent human. The fact that he is God and the fact that he is human does not necessarily leak into one nature or the other. In other words, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that somehow Jesus is God without diminishing his humanity and that somehow he is human without in any way diminishing his divinity. In this passage, Mark hints that at least one source of Christ's power is his absolute dependence upon his father. It is the regular times of solitary prayer. Jesus retains all of the power, all of the privileges of deity, but he lays aside, according to the book of Philippians, the prerogatives of his divinity in order to accomplish his father's mission. Jesus has come from heaven. And because he's come from heaven, he's come from heaven at the behest of his father for a specific purpose. He comes to this world to live the life that you could never live, to die on a cross for your sins and to rise from the dead. And so Jesus embraces and experiences what it means to be human. And like every human being who has ever been born his purpose was to have friendship and fellowship with his father. And you may not know this, but that's your purpose to have friendship and fellowship with your heavenly father. So in this passage, we find Jesus praying, but we are also given a peek into his mission in verses 36 and 37 and 38. And we also are introduced to his persistent faithfulness in verse 39. So let's quickly look at prayer from Jesus's perspective in verse 35. It says now in the morning, having risen 
a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. In this opening verse, we can glean some facts about the prayer life of Jesus. What do you suppose some of those are? It would appear that Jesus prays. It would also appear that he schedules a time to pray. It would appear that Jesus looks for a place free from interruption and free from distraction. And by the way, for those of you who have been following along in Mark's gospel, as you've been studying with us, you discovered that, remember, the day before Jesus started his day in worship in the synagogue, you'll remember in the afternoon he went to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, his house, if you will, and Andrew's house. And there he lays his hand on this woman and she recovers completely. And when the sun goes down, word goes out that something remarkable is taking place. Demons flee. Diseases are healed. And dozens and then scores and then hundreds of people show up and on Peter's doorstep. And people are healed and people are delivered. And I'm going to suggest something to you. That with those hundreds of people and with all of that excitement, Jesus probably ministered to the wee hours of the morning. But look what this text says. Now in the morning, having risen a long time before daylight. Do you think that there was only a very small window of sleep for Jesus? I'm going to suggest to you that that's probably the case. Remember, whatever it means to be human, it means that you are subject to the limitations of being a human. We get hungry. We need food. We need sleep. We need shelter. Do you think that Jesus was tired? Do you think that Jesus was drained? Do you think that Jesus became weary? I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what happens. But he doesn't use that as an excuse not to have a quiet time with his father. By the way, you might be thinking, I have a busy schedule. Really? More busy than Jesus? It's been my experience that we generally find time for the things that we think are important. I won't bother to embarrass you and ask you how much time you spend watching television. I won't bother to embarrass you and ask you how much time you spend entertaining yourself. I won't bother to embarrass you and ask you how much time you spend in hobbies. But I am going to bother to ask you a question that I hope that you'll seriously consider. Have you come to the place in your life where you realize just how important it is to spend time with the Lord? Have you come to a place where you began to consider that you've prayed some of the prayers? Lord, I want to be a spiritual man. Lord, I want to be a spiritual woman. As a matter of fact, you might have even sang the songs at worship when you said, In the secret, in the quiet place, in the stillness you are there. You may have sung the song, I want to know you more. Never realizing that that's exactly what the Lord wants to do. He wants to know you more. He wants to answer your prayer. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 4, the prophet Isaiah wrote, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. To hear as the learned. Is it possible that that is in part a prophecy? That the father spoke to the son and awakened him early in the morning. Warren Wearsby comments, quote, this was the source of his power. For Jesus served on earth just as you and I must serve by faith, depending on the power of the spirit. Workers who are too busy to pray are too busy. And God will not bless their efforts. If the Son of God had to spend time in prayer while ministering on earth, how much more do we need to pray? I think he's right. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5? I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do 
nothing. You know the scripture. Without you, without me, you can do nothing. Apparently, that doesn't mean that you can't watch TV. And apparently, it doesn't mean you can't pursue your hobbies. But apparently, it does mean that you can't do anything that has lasting value, that has eternal consequences. We need daily time with the Lord for guidance and for strength and for wisdom to deal with trials and tests and temptations. But most of all, because we were created to know God. But we were also created to be known by God. That's your reason for existence. And the reality is the Bible teaches that there's something terrible that has happened on the earth. Sin has entered into our circumstances. And because of sin, people live in darkness, estranged from God. But here's part of the point. Jesus comes from heaven to the earth to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead for our justification. In the morning, first of all, Savior, may I hear thy call. Make me ready to obey thy commands throughout the day. It would appear that Jesus tried to find a place (laughs) where he could be free from distraction and interruption. Of course, how did that work out for him? Apparently, in the text, the disciples found him out. By the way, does the effectiveness of our ministries depend on cultivating those prayerful disciplines? Whatever else prayer accomplishes, it's an admission. The moment that you decide to pray is the moment that you're ready to relinquish the reality that you can't and he can. R. Kent Hughes asks the question, what does Jesus pray? He says, popular among Christians is the acrostic, acts, A-C-T-S. It's... It's the idea of when you pray, we enter into adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. Kent Hughes writes, but Jesus never confesses sin because he never sins. He writes, I don't doubt that Jesus prayed for himself, but I'm convinced that he prayed for the mission, that he prayed for his followers Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus in prayer. E. Stanley Jones, the famous missionary to India, once described prayer as a time exposure to God. Of course, he was writing a very long time ago. In an age of digital photography, we don't always understand that in the ancient times, a person would take a picture and in direct Proportion to the exposure would be the crispness and the cleanness of the photograph. And the the point that he's beginning to make is that when you are exposed to the mind of God and when you are exposed to the character of God and when you are exposed to the person of God, guess what? Things begin to change. Your mind begins to change and your heart begins to change. The illustration hardly works anymore in our day. But it kind of represents our collective philosophy because we live in an instant age and because we have instant photography and we have instant access to the images that we click. We sometimes think that there should be instant holiness, that we should instantly have the character of God, that we should instantly have the mind of God, that we should instantly do the things that Jesus did. But guess what? There's a process that begins to take place as you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. Hardly a week goes by on my radio program that someone doesn't ask me the question, why should I pray? I've answered this question, I'm sure, scores of times. Why should I pray? I'll ask him a question. Tell me what you believe about God. I believe God is sovereign. I believe God knows everything about everything. I believe God knows everything in advance. And because God knows everything and he knows everything in advance, and because he's going to do whatever he wants to do, why should I pray? And I say, that's because you're missing the point of prayer. Prayer isn't telling God what to do. Prayer isn't pleading with God to change his mind. Prayer is the mechanism that God has established whereby we can express our love and our friendship and our fellowship with God. You pray for the same reason that you talk to your children. 
Imagine you had a conversation with your, with your, with your child. I'm your dad. This is your birth certificate. And we never have to talk about this ever again. Look, I've established my paternity. I've established my identity. And by the way, I never want to speak to you ever again. See, some of you laugh because of the absurdity of the illustration, but some of you frown knowing the reality of, the, of, of that that's exactly the way some dads act. I'm your father. I'm your father. Why should you need anything from me? Why should you want anything from me? Why should you desire any communication from me? And that becomes the whole point of the powerful passage of prayer. Prayer is a conversation. It's a conversation between friends. And in case you hadn't noticed, your friend happens to be the king of the universe and the Lord of life and the creator of all things. Prayer for many people, is the last resort after having exhausted all other resorts. Oh, I've tried everything I guess I'm going to have to pray. Corey Ten Boom used to say, Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? I love that. Is it your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? Do you see conversations with God as that which takes place when you break down on the road of life? Or is it the steering wheel that guides you in the direction that you need to, to go? There's a second question associated with why should I pray? And it has to do with the text. Why would Jesus need to pray? And again, the question betrays a misunderstanding both of Jesus and prayer. Yes, Jesus is God, but Jesus is man. Jesus does not live his life apart from his father, but in deep dependence upon his father. And it becomes a type and a picture, a model for you. And by the way, each and every one of you are somewhere on that spectrum. You are living your life in deep dependence upon the Father. Or you are living your life in deep independence from the Father. And so now all of a sudden on the spectrum, the Lord is asking you, won't you depend upon your Father? Won't you depend upon your Father? Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 19, the son can do nothing by himself. And again, in John 14, 10, the words I say to you, they're not my own. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. We depend upon the father. Jesus depends upon the father. He depends upon the father for strength and for guidance and for power. And you might say, OK, uh, I just I pray to the Lord all the time. I'm sure Jesus lived in an atmosphere of prayer and constant communion. But do you really think that you're more spiritual than Jesus? Jesus sets aside a specific time for friendship and fellowship and relationship with his father. For guidance and strength and support from his father. And by the way, Jesus doesn't begin by a sermon on prayer, but by modeling prayer. He doesn't say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everybody gather around and I'm going to give you a smoking cool sermon on praying. Jesus has cast out demons and Jesus has healed the sick and Jesus has labored deep, deep into the night and Jesus has got, gotten up way before the sun has gotten up and he has stolen away to a quiet place to pray to his father. When we depend on man, we get what man can do. And when we depend upon God, we get what God can do. What is it that you need? Because guess what? Only God 
can change your heart. Only God can provide forgiveness. Only God can, can provide hope. Only God can change the darkness that's inside you of you into light. Only God can change the guilt that is inside of you into freedom. Only God can bring about a miraculous change that will result in you no longer being estranged to Him. J. Sidlow Baxter wrote, quote, Men may spurn our appeals. They may reject our message. They may oppose our arguments. They may despise our persons. But they're helpless against our prayers. I want to talk to somebody. I need to talk to someone. I need to argue with someone. I need to make somebody like me. Really, is that what you need? Did it ever stop to, did it ever occur to you that maybe what you need to do is pray for that person? Because God will do what you cannot do. Have you felt the desire for a deeper walk with the Lord? Have you considered having a time with the Lord on a daily basis? Experience tells us that those who are close to the Lord set aside time each day. Some people call this in the stillness, in the quiet place, in the secret place. When I was growing up, we called it a quiet time. And by the way, there are several resources that are available that can help you develop and cultivate a quiet time. What it means to get up, what it means to open up your Bible, what it means to pray. The resources include tips on how you can have affectionate confidence in the Lord, how you can use the Bible for devotions, how you can make time, find the place, still your heart, expect his presence, how to have a simple, practical, effective way to cultivate your friendship and fellowship with the Lord. By the way, we have a little brochure from Greg Laurie and Harvest that includes some of these principles and even that statement, ACTS, adoration, confession, Thanksgiving and supplication, choosing a scripture to read, praying for insight on how to apply the message, meditating on verses that you choose, writing out specific applications for your life, how the application should be practical, how the application should be possible, how the application should be provable. It includes tips for how to memorize scripture, how to praise the Lord, confess your sins, being thankful for things, personal prayer requests, praying for others. And by the way, we've posted this online, and if you need help getting there, you can go to our website, and um, before this, this message is over, with, I'll, I'll give you specific instructions, and then we'll have it in written form available in the information uh, counter. But again, Jesus prays. Is it simply for power? I don't think so. I think it's for friendship and fellowship and relationship and guidance and strength. Power, by the way, is never good unless the person who possesses it is good. Is your Heavenly Father good? Is your Savior good? Have you ever prayed for power? Are you good? Here's the good news. Jesus wants to make you that way. He's moving you in a different direction. And then we go to missions. Look what it says from Jesus' perspective. Beginning in verse 36, it says, And Simon and those who were with him, that is, with Jesus. So we're talking about Peter, James, John, Andrew. They searched for him. By the way, the verb searched is very interesting in the original language. Kata, diako. It appears only here in the New Testament. It's really two words that are together. Diaku means to run after. It means to search. It means to eagerly search for. It means to hunt for. And when you have the intensive prefix kata, it means to go all out and look for something with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. The idea is they went beating the bushes looking for Jesus. When I read this, it reminded me of Easter growing up in the Geraci home with my father. My father was from Italy, and he had a strange way of doing things. American customs were fun for him, but he would modify them. My father would take one of those plastic Easter eggs, 
And he would stick a hundred dollar bill in it. And he would take aluminum foil and then he would wrap it and he would say, Hey, whoever finds the egg gets a hundred dollars. And when you're eight years old, and there's a, now remember when I'm eight, it's in the 1960s and a hundred dollars. Hey, this is in a time when a hundred dollars is a lot of money. So guess how motivated I am to find this egg? What am I willing to do and where am I willing to go to find the egg? We're left with the impression that these disciples mount a search party as they go out to look for him. Look what it says in verse 37. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, let's backtrack just a moment. Jesus and the disciples have been ministering all night. Jesus gets up early, hours before the sun comes up. So is it safe to say, when Jesus left, Peter, James, John, Andrew, are they still asleep? Yes. Somehow, during the course of the morning, they wake up. True or false? Apparently, they do. Now, Peter says, everybody's looking for you. I'm going to ask you a question. Who's everybody? Did scores and hundreds of people gather together when they discovered that Jesus could cast out demons and heal the sick? Is it possible that a new crowd has already assembled outside of the house for another round of healing and deliverance? I'm going to say yes also. In other words, a crowd starts to grow and they start to swell. And one of the most surprising answers that we find in the scriptures, Jesus gives right here in chapter 1, verse 38. But he said to them, let us go into the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come for. Mark's use of the noun Como, polis, is from two words. Come means village. Polis means city. He says, let us go into the next towns. The word literally means village cities. Or we might even say country villages or country towns. In other words, he's saying, let's leave Capernaum. And let's go to the rest of the places where we need to go. And William MacDonald asks this incredible question. He says, why did he not return to Capernaum? And he offers these possibilities, interesting possibilities. Number one, Jesus had just spent several hours in prayer and had learned what God wanted him to do that day. That makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus leaves, he gets up, he begins to pray as he's praying to the Father. Doesn't it make sense to you that the Father is speaking to him? Doesn't it make sense to you that as the Father is speaking to him, that he's laying out the schedule? I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly what God does. When you decide to get up in the morning and pray a prayer... Heavenly Father, hey, this is my schedule. Lord, I've got to, I, I got to take the kids to school, and, and little Jimmy's got a, a, a doctor's appointment, and then I got to meet for a PTA meeting in the afternoon, and and then I've got a women's meeting in the afternoon, and I've got this, and I've got that, and I've got this, and I've got that. And by the way, does God reserve the right to change your schedule without your permission? Apparently, He does. But I think that that's different than when we pray and we go, Lord, I planned all of these things. I want to honor you and please you. I'm willing to do exactly what you want me to do. I'm willing to do everything that you want me to do. And I'm willing to do nothing that you don't want me to do. And so as Jesus is praying... It could very well be that he has different instructions from his father. Number two, Jesus may have realized that the popular movement in Capernaum was shallow. The Savior never went to extraordinary efforts to draw big crowds. Jesus was far more interested in what was going on inside of a person's heart. But you can imagine Peter, James, and John going, Lord, 
We have an instant crowd. They're there in the Capernaum. Hundreds of people are showing up. Thousands might. It's a revival. Why would we want to go anywhere else when they're all coming to us by the droves? And by the way, that's number three. Did Jesus know about the perils of popularity and did he teach his disciples by example to beware when all men speak well of you? By the way, does does Jesus strike you as the person who is going to be manipulated by the crowds or be told what to do by his disciples? Or are you impressed with the fact that when Jesus says, when my father tells me to do something, that's what I do. If my father tells me to go, I go. And if my father tells me to stay, I stay. And that's number four. Jesus consistently avoided any superficial, emotional demonstrations that would have put a crown before the cross. And number five, the great emphasis of Jesus' ministry was on preaching the message, on preaching the word, the miracles, the healing, while they were intended with care and compassion to relieve human suffering and misery. They were also designed to gain attention for the preaching. Even though McDonald doesn't mention it, I would point out that the miracles were intended to demonstrate the Messiah's power and to authenticate the Messiah's message. And what is his message? My father sent me from heaven. I'm here on a mission from my father. And this is my mission to tell you the most important thing that you could possibly know. That God loves you. But that your sin has separated you from God. But he's going to make a mechanism whereby your sin can be forgiven. Where your broken heart can be healed. Where your guilt can be dealt with. And by the way, what is that mechanism? He's going to be the mechanism. You see, he's the only person in all of history who, the, where the messenger and the message is the source of salvation. And right from the start, Jesus understands his mission. Capernaum and many of its people, they've seen Jesus. They've heard the message of Jesus. They've watched Jesus heal. The people in Capernaum are now capable of communicating the message themselves. And Jesus is going to move on. And Jesus refuses to allow people to dictate his schedule. His father is going to determine the schedule. And in the Great Commission, when Jesus is getting ready to go, he says, As my father has sent me, so I send you. How did the father send the son? With specific instructions and with the power to accomplish the task. No wonder Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, and teach the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But now the work of ministering will spread out to the neighboring villages. Ministering the, the, the gospel, making disciples, preaching, teaching, evangelizing. And by the way, in this passage, I was struck as I read maybe dozens of times this sentence that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. All of a sudden, I'm struck with Jesus's perception of preaching. Powerful praying. Preaching has fallen out of favor. When people look at their schedule, preaching often falls to the bottom of the list. Hey, I've got way much, you know, I've got a men's this, I've got a women's that, I've got this, this, and that, and that. Hey, you know what? Preaching, who needs it? Preaching has fallen out of favor. Most people don't even know what the word preaching means. All they know is they don't like it. Their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, their neighbors, their family, and their friends would put their hands on their hips and say, Don't preach to me! Whatever it is, they just knew they didn't like it because it sounded like you wanted people to do stuff. Preaching involves the impartation of information, no doubt about it. And preaching is different from teaching in at least this way. Preaching is a mechanism whereby you are urgently asked 
to believe something or do something. It may come as a shock and as a surprise to you, but the Son of God was a preacher. And he preached. And he places a priority of preaching in his outreach ministry. You might think, of course you're going to read the text that way. You're a preacher. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Somebody in the first service said a hammer. And I go, no. A hammer doesn't mean everything looks like a hammer. When you're a preacher, everyone looks like someone who could be a potential convert. But when you're a preacher, also remember the world falls into two categories. Those who are dead in trespasses and sin and those who are alive in Christ. And so for the preacher, the preacher knows that there's an emptiness and the darkness inside of a soul. He wants that emptiness and darkness to be filled. Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher, said, I preach as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. I'm fully aware. I'm completely aware. That every time I speak, that for someone it might be the last time they ever hear a message of hope. Every time I open my mouth, every time we have a church service, there is someone who is listening to the message who will get into their car and they will drive into an embankment. For someone, eventually life and death will find them out and they won't survive that week or that month or that year. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul wrote, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It may come as a shock and as a surprise to you, but God has ordained something as foolish as preaching to bring people to a place of decision inside of their own heart. That maybe Jesus is true and that maybe the claims of Jesus are true and that maybe life is found in Jesus. And I remember when I was 16 years old and I heard a person preach a message from John chapter 11 about how Jesus was the resurrection and the life and how Lazarus was brought back to death from the dead. And I remember as if it were yesterday, even now I can hear the voice whispering in my ear that if Jesus can bring a dead person back to life, I wonder if he could change my heart and change my life. And God do something as foolish as preaching to knock on the door of my heart. And I invited Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. By the way, how many of you heard something as foolish as a preacher preach a message and you believe the message and you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Raise your hand just for a moment and raise it high. I want the people who aren't raising their hand to look at you that it was something as foolish as a a message being preached that brought you into the kingdom. Now, according to the Bible, there are three ways that a person enters into a right relationship with God through Christ. Preaching is one of them. The other way seems to be personal evangelism in the form of relationships. Where a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a family member, a friend, maybe even a complete stranger sits you down for reasons that we don't exactly know. But they present to you the truth about the gospel. You hear it and you believe it and you receive Christ as your savior. How many of you came to Christ because someone loved you enough to share the gospel with you? Look around you. Look at the hands that are up. There's one other way, by the way, that people come to know the Lord. According to the New Testament. This is for the hard-hearted person and the hard-headed person. This is the person who has rejected preaching and personal evangelism. And Jesus himself has to show up in their hard head and their hard heart. It can be a prison cell. It can be a dark bedroom. It can be a lonely road. It can be in a rehab center. It's where the darkness and the emptiness surrounds you. And all of a sudden, Jesus himself shows up and he says, look, you and I need to have a conversation. I love you and I care about you. But your sin is destroying you. And guess what? If you will 
will relinquish the rights of your life to me. I will come into you. I will save you and I will heal you and I'll give you a new life. If you are that stubborn person, raise your hand. Look around you. Look around you. But make no mistake about it. It's preaching. It's preaching from a preacher. Or it's preaching from a friend. The preacher does better when you are there. It's hard to preach to an empty chair. But I will. If I have to. The towns and villages were filled with souls. The towns and villages were filled with people who needed to hear a message of hope. John Newton said that preaching should break a hard heart and it should heal a broken heart. And look at verse 39. Faithfulness from Jesus' perspective. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Think about this for just a moment. The kingdom of God is advancing in verse 39 and the kingdom of Satan is retreating. He's preaching in their synagogues. He's casting out demons. The text tells us that Jesus combines preaching with practice. Jesus doesn't simply say stuff. He does stuff. And by the way, Galilee was a province of Palestine. It was founded, says Josephus, on the west by Ptolemaeus and Mount Carmel, on the south by the country of Samaria and Scythopolis on the River Jordan, on the east by the canons of Hippos, Gadara, and Golan, what you and I would call the Golan Heights, and on the north by the confines of the Tyrians. And so it was to the west by the Mediterranean Sea, to the north, Carmel, and to the south, Samaria. As a matter of fact, it was divided into the lower and upper Galilee. The upper Galilee, so-called from its mountains. It was termed Galilee of the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, because it was inhabited, according to Strabo, by Egyptians, Arabians, Phoenicians, and it it comprised the tribes of Asher and Naphtali. The lower Galilee comprised the tribes of Zebulon and Issachar, and it was sometimes called the Great Field. And the reason why it was called the Great Field, it was, it was because it was the breadbasket for that area. What you and I would call the heartland. This is the, the place where the grains are grown. And according to Josephus, now Josephus is writing in the eighth decade of the first century, just a generation past the time of Jesus. And according to Josephus, the area was populous and rich, and it contained 204 cities and towns. 204 cities and towns. And Jesus says, I've got to go there too. I've got to go there too. I've got to go to the villages and the hamlets. I've got to go to these places and those places because just like John Newton said, there are people there who have hard hearts and there are people there who have broken hearts and they need to hear. And think about it for just a moment. Jesus heals and he continues to heal. And Jesus restrains And he continues to restrain evil. Later in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, verse 28. The religious leaders say to Jesus, what will we do? What should we do to work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. They're basically asking the question, what do we have to do in order to make God happy? And here's Jesus's response. Believe in the person whom he has sent. Who sent? Who's the sent one? It's Jesus. They know it. In verse 30, it says, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? They understand that he's talking about himself. In the chapter, they go on and say, you know, our father Moses brought us bread from heaven. And Jesus corrects their very bad theology. Moses didn't give you the bread. My father gave you the bread. And then Jesus said, I'm the bread who's come down from heaven. 
Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And if you eat my body and drink my blood, he's not talking about Catholic communion. He's talking about his sacrifice. He's talking about believing. Remember, believing in the one whom was sent. It's believing that Jesus is that sacrifice, that he is the satisfying solution to the problem of pain and the problem of guilt and the problem of sin. Prayer brings power. But so does powerful preaching. Do you know what the people's response is? They don't believe. As a matter of fact, Jesus will later say it's a wicked and an adulterous generation that requires a sign or looks after a sign. He'll say, there's one sign that I'll give you. He said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so I will be in the earth. Here's the sign that he was willing to give. Kill me and I'll come back to life. By the way, will they take Jesus up on his offer? They'll do exactly that. They will kill him. And he will come back to life. But Jesus continues to preach. In every town. In every city. In every village. The foolish man may pick up a gun. And it can go off. A foolish man can pick up a stick of dynamite. And it can explode. Is it possible for a foolish, hypocritical, inconsistent person to preach the gospel and the gospel still change a person's life? Yeah, the same way a gun can kill you and a stick of dynamite can blow you up. It doesn't matter who's pulling the trigger and it doesn't matter who lights the fuse. The gospel saves. My granny used to say, when you're a possum, you play dead. When you corner a hypocrite, he plays alive. It's bad grammar, but it's great theology. Hypocrisy doesn't make the gospel any less true. We live in an accelerated age. A person can go to hell quickly or slowly and predictably. There's power in prayer. There's power in preaching. There's power in a life that's lived faithfully. When Sir Henry Stanley went out in 1871 and Dr. David Livingston, he spent some months in his company, but Livingston never spoke to Stanley about spiritual things. And throughout those months, Stanley watched the old man. Livingston's habits were beyond his comprehension and so was his patience. He couldn't understand Livingston's sympathy for the Africans, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. The missionary doctor was patient, untiring, eager, spending himself, being spent for his master. Stanley wrote, quote, when I saw that unwearied patience, when I saw that unflagging zeal, when I saw those enlightened sons of Africa, I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke to me about it. Don't mistake what he's saying. Stanley isn't saying you can't you can be saved apart from the gospel. Stanley heard the gospel. Stanley heard Livingston preach the gospel and he heard Livingston pray the gospel and he heard Livingston live the gospel. Just like Paul. Just like Luther. Just like Wesley. Just like Jonathan Edwards. Just like George Whitfield. Just like Livingston. They prayed and they preached and then they lived the gospel. Do you want the Lord to work through you? Do you dare pray the prayer? Lord, make me a spiritual man. Lord, make me a spiritual woman. Then pray for ability and opportunity. Pray with power. Practice true spirituality. A.W. Tozer wrote, true spirituality manifests itself in certain dominant desires. Number one, first is the desire to be holy rather than happy. Is that your desire? 
Does life consist for you in what makes me happy or what makes me holy? Number two, a man may be considered spiritual when he wants to see the honor of God advance through his life, even if it means that he must suffer temporary dishonor or loss. Number three, the spiritual man wants to carry his cross. Number four, again, a a Christian is spiritual when he sees everything from God's viewpoint. Do you want to know God's viewpoint? Open up your Bible. Do you want to know God's perspective on mission? Open up your Bible. Do you want to know God's perspective on faithfulness? Open up your Bible. Do you want to know God's perspective on marriage? Open up your Bible. Another desire of a spiritual man is to die right rather than to live wrong. That's number five. When you come to the place in your life where you say, I'm rather, I'm more willing to die right than live wrong, then you're making progress. Number six, the desire to see others advance, even if it's at your expense. And number seven, the spiritual man habitually makes eternity judgments instead of time judgments. By the way, every judgment you will make today will fall into one of those two categories. You'll make an important decision that has to do with time or you'll make an important decision that has to do with eternity. That's what you'll do today. Those are the choices that you'll make. I wish I could say that each and every choice will matter, but it won't. But there are some that really will matter. The moment that you decide in your heart that you're going to be a man after God's own heart, that you're going to be a woman after God's own heart, the moment that you decide and you say, I am going to pray and I am going to seek you and I am going to love you and I am going to learn from you and I am going to serve you and I am going to give my life for you, then you're making choices that will, that will last forever. So, you want to draw close to him? You can. Make the choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that, Lord, we would desire to know the things that you know and love the things that you love and honor the things that you honor. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would Be on board with your mission that you take things that we think are not really all that important. Like personal prayer. And powerful preaching. That you would use something as simple as a message of hope to change a person's life forever. And Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are faithful. Lord, we pray that we would get up and we would put our schedule at your disposal. That, Lord, we would be willing and open and available. And that, Lord, we wouldn't just look at the crowds and we wouldn't just look at the drama. And we wouldn't just look at what seems like an outward manifestation of success. That we would begin to trust your judgment and your love. And so, Father, I pray for that person. Who's empty, fill them. Who's guilty, forgive them. Lord, I pray that they would invite you into their life even now. That they would admit that they're a sinner. And that Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of their sin. And Lord, I pray for every single person that if they're struggling. That Lord, that they would look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, I commit them to you, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.